you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 16. Psalm 16 tonight. As I mentioned, this is the, the last psalm that we're going to be looking at in this um, brief series where we've just bounced around a little bit. Psalm 16. Psalm 16. I titled the message tonight, It Only Gets Better From Here. It only gets better from here. Psalm 16. We're told in Psalm 30 and verse number 5, For his anger endureth but for a moment. In his favor is life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. Now that is an incredibly encouraging verse, especially for people who are in the midst of some sort of trouble. But how long is the night? Weeping may endure for a night, the Bible says. How long is that night? We may have the promise that our weeping will not endure forever, for it goes on to say that joy cometh in the morning. But when will the morning come? Sometimes those night seasons seem to drag on forever. Sometimes it feels as though morning will never come, that the sun will never rise. Sometimes our difficulties seem to have no end in sight, and whatever light we once saw at the end of that tunnel has either been turned off or is now too far out of sight. And as we've seen through our adventure in the Psalms, David knows a thing or two about being in the night seasons. It seems that most of his Psalms begin with him in a night season, but fortunately end with God rescuing him from whatever it was that he was dealing with or David finding comfort in knowing that God is going to be faithful in some way and bring deliverance. And the psalm we'll be looking at tonight is no different. It is believed that this psalm, Psalm 16, was written at a time when David was experiencing a, actually a bit of peace in his life, which was a surely welcome change from the craziness that he was used to seeing. This psalm was most likely written when David was on the run from Saul. And I say this is a peaceful time. Listen up. It was during the time when he was on the run from Saul, but... He actually held Saul's life in his hand as he had a spear pointed at him. And a quick thrust and a twist could have ended his problems altogether and ended Saul's life once and for all. What we see from David, though, is a restraint. He trusted in God's anointing that he would become king through God's means, not through his own means. And the story is recorded for us in 1 Samuel 26. I'm not going to have you turn there, but I'm going to summarize some of these details for us. Saul and 3,000 of his best soldiers were hotly pursuing David. They had camped for the night in the wilderness of Ziph without having any idea just how close they actually were to David. David was close enough that he could actually see where Saul and those 3,000 men were camped. And David would come and he would spy out the area where Saul was and the 3,000 men were there, and he would wait until they put down their guard. They relaxed and they were settling down for the night. And David then decided to embark on this impromptu and almost suicidal mission to go and to basically come upon the camp of Saul and his 3,000 men and see what he could do. And he's joined by a man who was very loyal to him, a man by the name of Abishai. And the two of them go down by night. Once Saul and his 3,000 men are down for the night and they're all sleeping and they find Saul on the ground with his spear at his side. 
Now this is just a crazy mission. Uh, this is something that you'd see in some sort of really crazy action movie where the hero sneaks into, and it's, it's almost backwards because when the, the hero should be on the run, he sneaks into the camp of the enemy, which goes beyond and kind of like what you would typically think as normal behavior. Can you imagine what this must have been like? The courage of David to even go through this because he essentially marches right into the mouth of the lion thinking that he can maybe do something to prevent this and somehow he's not going to be spotted or noticed or heard by the 3,000 men that are there. I mean, it's not as if they're playing a game of capture the flag. Have any of you ever played capture the flag before? That is literally your purpose. You literally need to go into the heart of the enemy camp to capture their flag, which is usually surrounded by all sorts of guards. They're not playing a game. He's been on the run for his life, and he decides to march right into the lion's den, the mouth of the lion that is seeking to destroy him. And there he is. He sneaks right into the camp of Saul. 3,000 of his men, Saul's men are there, who are armed and instructed to kill David. While most people would have figured to put as much distance between them and Saul, David embarks on this heroic mission right into harm's way. And it's amazing that David and Abishai were able to make it as far as they did, for they are literally standing within arm's reach of Saul, and Saul is fast asleep, has no idea that they're right there. This is every soldier's worst nightmare because Saul is completely vulnerable at that moment. There's supposed to be someone that's watching on guard, pre preventing such an attack from happening. And it, somehow David and Abishai are able to make it in there. No one should be able to get that close to him. And not only has David managed to do the impossible, but Abishai is there also. And they haven't woken up a soul in the process. I can't imagine how they were tiptoeing around bodies that are sleeping just to get to where Saul was. And there they are. As the two of them are standing over Saul and his sleeping soldiers, Abishai is like a shark that smells blood in the water. David, let's do it. Grab the spear. This can all be over in like two seconds. Now, this is my version. That's not what the Bible actually says. But this is basically what he's saying. He's seeing an end to this. They've been on the run for so long, and he sees an end. And it can end right now with Saul's own spear. So he is just, oh, he's probably drooling. He's whispering to David, David, I can just grab it. We can be done. This is what we came in to do. He sees it. No more running, no more hiding, no more looking over his shoulder to wonder how close the enemy is pursuing. A simple thrust of the spear, twisting it. Saul is dead. We're over with this. But listen to what David says to him. In 1 Samuel 26, verse 9, they're there. They're over the body of the sleeping Saul. And Abishai says, let's finish him. Verse 9 of 1 Samuel 26 says, David said to Abishai, destroy him not. For who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Can you believe that? Destroy him not. You came all this way. You're standing over the one who wants you dead. You can grab his own spear and put an end to this once and for all. The days of him being a fugitive could be over in a matter of an instant. And he says, no. Wasn't this the reason that they went on the suicidal mission in the first place? They were standing over the body of Saul with a spear within reach and could have killed him without anyone knowing, but he decided against it. In that moment, David began looking at his situation from a heavenly perspective, from God's perspective. 
rather than his own self-serving perspective. Again, Abishai is self-serving. He's thinking this can be over. We can end him. We can move on. But David realized that it wasn't his call to end the life of Saul, so he instead opted to do something that was incredibly clever. He took Saul's spear and the cruise of water that lay next to him, and the two of them just walked right on out. How do you think Saul felt when he woke up in the morning to find that his spear that he had for his own protection that was laying next to him when he fell asleep that night was suddenly missing? Well, the rest of 1 Samuel 26 tells us that David and Abishai leave and David goes a, a good ways off on top of a hill, but will, still within shouting distance of where Saul and his armies are camped out. And he starts shouting out, to the camp of Saul. And he accuses Abner of being a poor bodyguard. Abner was basically like Saul's right-hand man. He was like the number one bodyguard. They're all fast asleep when David and Abishai get in there. And so he calls out to Abner and basically accuses him of being a poor bodyguard because David was able to sneak right past all 3,000 of those men, including Abner, straight to Saul. And he tells Abner that he better watch his back because he deserves to die based on how bad of a job he did protecting the Lord's anointed King Saul. And in the midst of this, Saul can hear this exchange between David, who's shouting from the top of a hill from a little ways off, to Abner, who's communicating back, and Saul recognizes that it's David's voice. And listen to what we read in, in 1 Samuel 26 and verses 17 to 25. It says, And Saul knew David's voice and said, Is this thy voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Wherefore doth my lord thus pursue his servant? For what have I done? Or what evil is in mine hand? Now, therefore, I pray thee, let my Lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. If the Lord have stirred thee up against me, let him accept an offering. But if they be the children of men, cursed be they before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day from abiding in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, God, serve other gods. Now, therefore, go and serve other gods. Now, therefore, let my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea as when one doth hunt a partridge in the mountains. Then said Saul, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do thee harm. Because my soul was precious in thine eyes this day, behold, I have played the fool and have erred exceedingly. And David answered and said, Behold the king's spear, and let one of the young men come over and fetch it. The Lord rendered to every man his righteousness and his faithfulness, for the Lord delivered thee into my hand today. But I would not stretch forth mine hand against the Lord's anointed. And behold, as thy life was much set by this day in mine eyes, so let my life be much set by in the eyes of the Lord, and let him deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be thou, my son David. Thou shalt both do great things, and also shalt still prevail. So David went on his way, and Saul returned to his place. Now, this was this quite an encounter, and it leaves David with a sense of peace because for the first time in years, David knows he doesn't have to run. It is at this time that David presumably wrote Psalm 16. He's reflecting upon all the good that God has done for him. So let's go ahead and look at what it says here in Psalm 16. It says, Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. O my soul. Thou hast said unto the Lord, Thou art my Lord, my goodness extendeth not to thee, but to the saints that are in the earth, and to the excellent in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied that hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood will I not offer, nor take up their names into my lips. 
The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. My reins also instruct me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth, for my flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. No matter where you find yourself in life, the most important thing for you to do is to first remember who God is. Remember who God is. In many of David's psalms, we see him eventually coming to this point where he remembers who God is after several verses, but this is where he starts this time. He says, preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. He starts by acknowledging who God is, and he does this in several ways. First, he sees God in his own personal life. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. He says, preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, thou art my Lord, my goodness extendeth not to thee. In just the first two verses, David uses three different names for God. He uses the word Elohim, he uses the word Jehovah, and the word Adonai. They appear almost the same way in our Bibles. He says, O God, in verse number one. In verse number two, he says, Lord, and that should be all caps, all L-O-R-D. And then shortly after that, he says, Thou art my Lord, and it's capital L. Three different names in the Hebrew, and it's the in the order, Elohim in verse number one, it is Jehovah, the first one, all caps, and then Adonai in uh, the second, the second, uh, third one, rather. And Elohim speaks of God's strength and power, the one who is almighty. Jehovah speaks of the personal God who is eternal, who is uh, intimately aware of all of our cares and all of the needs that we face. And then Adonai speaks of God who is eternally present with us. So there's three different aspects of God that he's calling upon essentially here as he references Elohim, Jehovah, and Adonai to reference the one true God in, who is personal to him. But David is, is positively overwhelmed that the God who is all that he declares him to be and so much more would ever surround him with love, with protection, with power and strength. I think we often allow the craziness of life to distract us from the truth of who God is to us personally. If you've trusted in Jesus as your Savior, God is everything to you. If you have trusted in him, he is more than everything to you. During the night seasons when weeping is sure to endure, our focus has shifted, though, from remembering who God is to being overwhelmed by our present circumstances. It is often the simple reminder of just remembering who God is to you personally that helps us the most in those night seasons, that helps the, the, the joy that is going to come in the morning to eventually come. It is the reminder of who God is that will help you focus that attention in the right place and see that there is indeed an end to the weeping that is enduring here for the night. God has not abandoned you in those night seasons. You just need to open your eyes and remind yourself that he is still there with you just as he has always promised to be. See God in your own personal life, but also see God in his people. Look at what it says in verse number three again. He says, but to the saints that are in the earth and to the excellent, in whom is all my delight? Throughout the time that David had been on the run, 
He had surrounded himself with loyal friends who he's referring to as saints here in verse number three. They have put their lives on the line for David. Abishai literally went right into the mouth of the lion with him to go and try to kill Saul. But they have done everything they can to make sure that David is protected. And as David reflects upon all of this, he is deeply moved by their, by their devotion to him. When was the last time you stopped to think about the people that God has surrounded you with, the people that God has placed in your life, the people that are faithful, the people that are praying for you, the people that you can count on to encourage you, to tell you what you need to hear, not always what you want to hear, but what you need to hear. The point we see is that God never intended on us going through life's difficulties alone. He promises to never leave us, to and never forsake us. But he also puts important people in our lives to help us, especially when we're struggling. When you read through the small book of 1 John, one of the main themes of that book is for believers to have love for each other. It starts by talking about how we need to have fellowship with God if we've fallen out of that. But one of the other main themes is how we're supposed to have love for fellow believers. God desires that we have fellowship with him, but also fellowship with others. Listen to what we're told in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8 and verse number 11. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. This is what is required of us as believers. And God intended on this being for our benefit. In fact, believers are offered a stern warning later on in 1 John chapter 4 and verses 20 and 21. It says, If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God loveth his brother also. And that's a pretty serious and stern warning there. And that is why Jesus taught his disciples when he was in the upper room with them. In John 13, right after he washed their feet, he said this to them. He says, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. He told them, you see me wash your feet, now go and do the same to others. And this is the message. He says, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. I don't think God can speak any clearer about this. He promises to be with us, and he promises to love us, but he also commands every single child of his to love each other. Sometimes it takes the storms of life for us to realize the godly friends that we have. But either way, we're supposed to fellowship and love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. So see God in his people, but also see God in his principles. Look at verse number four. It says, Their sorrows shall be multiplied that hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood will I not offer, nor take up their names into my lips. So David now turns his attention to the relationships in his life that are a bit troubled. David, as David has been on the run for several years at this point, he's, been, he's seen quite a bit of the, the rituals of the pagan nations that are surrounding Israel. If you remember kind of the, the, the way that David was running around as a fugitive, he spent some time in some of these pagan nations, so he saw a lot of the idolatry, he saw a lot of the pagan worship that was going on outside of Israel, not to mention some of the stuff that was just happening within Israel as well. But he sees all of this. And as he sees it all, he is thankful for how God has used him. And he counts God as the only one that is worthy of worship. 
The Bible is very clear that God's mercies and his compassions are brand new every single morning. You're alive today. As I mentioned this morning, you're breathing today. You have a pulse today. You have strength in your body today. Your body is literally being held together all through the power of God. We don't understand and honestly cannot grasp even a, a tenth of all that God is doing for us every single moment of every single day. God blesses us when we don't even think about it in ways we cannot even begin to imagine. What makes God so incredible, though, and based on all that, he's worthy of all of our praise and, and all, the, all the day and all the night, as long as we have life and breath within us. And what makes it so incredible is that even if God stopped blessing us, even if the, the, the shower of blessings stopped, he would still be worthy of our constant praise as long as we still lived. To know God and to be known by God is one of the greatest blessings that any of us could ever receive. To be known by God means that you never have to feel lonely. It means that you never have to feel isolated. It means that God doesn't just make time for you once a week. He, he never lets you feel insignificant. It means that he is there with you. He gives us the Holy Spirit to dwell within us every moment of every day as long as we're alive if we're his child. There's no place where any of us can ever go to escape God's presence for he is with every child of his for all eternity. So remember who God is. Number one. Number two, remind yourself of what God is doing. Remind yourself of what God is doing. One of the Psalms that we looked at previously was Psalm 121 which lets us know that God never slumbers nor sleeps. Now Saul's bodyguards were slumbering, sleeping, probably snoring, doing everything they could to be the worst bodyguards for Saul that could possibly imagine. They all fell asleep when they were supposed to be protecting Saul. But God never falls asleep on the job. You never have to worry about God falling asleep. You never have to worry about God losing track of time, forgetting about where he needs to be, forgetting about what needs to be done. God is at work even when it seems that things are not getting done. He is working in ways that we don't even see and imagine. David stops and reminds himself of how he is complete and everything that God is doing in his life. And notice what it says in verse number five. He says, the Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. Now, I'll be honest, there are many blessings that we have from God that we take for granted living here in America. How many of you are thankful and are thanking God every day for running water? Show of hands. Okay, one, two, maybe three. Hand kind of went up. How many of you are thanking God every day for food in your pantries and food in your fridges? Okay, a few more of you. How many of you are thanking God every day for the abundance of clothing that you have? Okay. I, I'm actually impressed. I was kind of thinking that no hands were going to be up. So praise the Lord. You guys are doing better than me. Uh, how many of you are thanking God every day for a vehicle to, ex, uh, to, uh, to get you to one, from point A to point B in a fair amount of time? Every day. You're thanking God for that vehicle? Wow, you guys are putting me to shame. I should just stop right now. How many of you are thanking God for a job that pays the bills every single day? Seriously? How many of you are thanking God every day for the roof over your heads? Oh, come on. Every day? Every day? Reggie? I'll take your word for it. How many of you are thanking God every day for a cell phone to communicate with people all over the world? Elijah, not a chance. Good. 
So no one put their hand up. No one's thankful for the cell phone. Good. The list is literally endless of blessings that we have from God that we rarely thank God for. Except for a few of you, some of us, most of us, weren't raising our hand for everything. And that's not to, to, to speak ill of any of you. It's, I honestly, probably my hand is not going up for any one of those because I can tell you that it's not every day that I'm thanking God for all of those things. But when we sit down to pray over things like our meal, there are many times that our prayers end up being something that we just need to get through in order for us to eat that food. Praying before a meal becomes a habit like washing our hands, and it often loses all of its sincerity as it becomes more an obligation. So be sure that you're thanking God and you're thanking him from your heart. You don't have to pray for hours at a time, but make it a point to sincerely thank God for who he is and what God is presently doing in your life. And when you do, you'll find, as David found, that he is all you will ever need. He says, the Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. But look again at verse number five because he says something else at the end. He says, thou maintainest my lot. David spent a number of years on the run. He's bouncing from one place to the next and with little stability in his life, but he knew that God was the one who maintained him from day to day. It wasn't just in times of crisis that God would step in and offer some help. It was all the time. In fact, when you look at verse number six, you find that his contentment was found in God. He says, the lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. So even though life has been crazy, David is able to look back on his life and he's able to see that God has allowed him, even in the craziness, to, le- to live a good life and that God has blessed, blessed him immensely. No one's life is going to be perfect. Just so I can make myself feel better. How many of your lives are perfect? Yes. Gotcha. No one raised me. None of us are perfect. And, and we can certainly find faults with how we've lived, but can you look back And see, over the course of your life, wherever you are right now, can you see how God's hand has worked in your life to where you are today? If you can, if you can see how he's worked, if you can see how he's provided, if you can see how he's protected, if you can see how he's intervened, how he's proved himself powerful, and you've even proved himself sufficient, what a blessing it is. You can say, like what David says, I have lived a goodly heritage. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. What a blessing it is to be able to look back on things like that and to see God's good hand upon you. Those are the things that we are to focus on. Those are the things that we should remember. David is looking back on his life and he's acknowledging that he has been blessed and blessed above and beyond what he ever expected. God has been far better to him than what he ever deserved and the same could be said for all of us. It's easy for us to lose sight of this, especially when we're focusing on all the negatives that we're dealing with right now and all the things that we wish that we would have done differently. But no matter your situation, I promise you that God has been far better to you than what you deserve. So even if you're thinking that your life up to this point hasn't amounted to all that much and you consider even yourself to be a failure, believe me, when you start counting your blessings as a child of God, you find that God has blessed you above and beyond measure. Rather than taking a negative inventory, which is something we tend to do, Take a few moments to inventory all the good that God has done in your life, that he's done through you, and you'll quickly find that your life is really not as bad as you originally thought it to be. Hopefully you'll learn to be content as you condition yourself to dwell on the blessings and begin expressing gratitude to God for all he has done and everything that he's doing right now. And next we see 
that God is, is a way, he's our counsel. In verse number seven, he says, I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. My reins also instruct me in the night seasons. Have you ever stopped and considered that we have these open lines of communication with the God of the entire universe? Now, this isn't anything new. This, I'm not sharing anything that you already don't know. But does this cross our minds nearly enough? I think we take this for granted. I think we often shortchange God for who he is and what he's truly able to do. Over time, I think we, we build up this familiarity in approaching God a certain way. And what happens, and I don't think this is intentional, but unintentionally, we kind of reduce God down to our level in some ways. And what, we, what happens is that we limit what God is able to do. Not that we limit him, but we limit in our minds what we think he is able to do. We're told in James chapter 1, verse number 5, it says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. So and that, the idea is that if every believer was praying regularly, if every believer was approaching God the right way, would we have to be reminded of this? Would we be lacking the wisdom that it says that we are lacking? If we're doing what we should be doing, we probably wouldn't be lacking the wisdom that we should, be lack, that we, we should have. Later on in James chapter 4 and verses 2 and 3, the Bible says, You have not because you ask not. You ask, it says, and receive not because you ask amiss. So think of how different our lives would be if we approached God the right way, if we asked for all the right things and fully trusted him the way that he is to be trusted. God tells us that we may call on him at any time through any situation and that he even delights to hear from us when we do. God is always available and always able. And David finds comfort in God's counsel in all the seasons of life because he recognizes God for who he is. He also finds great confidence as we see in verse number eight. He says, I've set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. It's a powerful statement to make that you will not be moved. It is acknowledging God's power. It's acknowledging God's strength in your life that brings a confidence which allows you to stand firm and face anything the world may throw at you. And this is what David is saying. He's not standing in his own strength, but he says, because the Lord is here, I shall not be moved. So remember who God is. Remind yourself of what God is doing. And third, rejoice in what God will do. Rejoice in what God will do. Look at verses nine and 10. He says, therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Now, verse 10 is a prophetic verse that actually speaks of Christ's resurrection. It's not often that the Old Testament speaks of Christ's resurrection. In fact, there's probably only like one or two instances where we see this. But here it speaks about Christ's resurrection. And we'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, the word holy one there in verse number 10 should be capital. And it's capital because David is not speaking of himself. It's capital because David is actually speaking of the future Messiah that is to come. God was showing David a picture of Christ's resurrection in his own resurrection that David would see going into everlasting life. Now, David knew that even though one day his life would come to an end here on earth, that he would continue for eternity in heaven with God. 
He's acknowledging the reality of his death, but he knows that death is not the end. It's just a means to usher him into the everlasting life that he's going to have with God. And it's pretty incredible that as the Holy Spirit has led David to write these words, he's leading him to speak of Christ's resurrection to ensure him of his own future that he's going to have in heaven with God. The Apostle Peter would actually reference this very same psalm in his, um, in his message at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And listen to what he preached in Acts chapter 2, verses 24 to 28. It's almost word for word what we read here in Psalm 16. He says, Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that that should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope. Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. So Peter preached about this. That what David was mentioning here in Psalm 16 was actually a reference to the Messiah that was years into the future as far as David's life is concerned. And a very close memory of the Apostle Peter having just seen the ascended Christ after his resurrection return to heaven. Uh, the Apostle Paul would also uh, mention this later on in Acts chapter 13 as he was preaching in Antioch. Uh, either way, we're seeing that David referenced something that wouldn't happen in his lifetime. And even if he, fully, if he didn't even fully grasp the gravity of what he's saying, God has allowed us, with the advantage of having the completed Bible before us, to see what David might have not fully seen as he wrote these words. Praise the Lord that we, like David, never have to see corruption for just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, so shall every believer be received into the glories of heaven the very moment that we breathe our last breath here on this earth. And finally, I want you to notice verse number 11. It says here, Thou will show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand are, there are pleasures forevermore. I've shared this verse at funerals uh, for good reason. It's been said that the greatest moment in the life of the believer is his last moment on earth because that is the closest that he is to heaven. Sometimes we get carried away with what heaven is going to be like and what aspects of heaven that we are going to enjoy the most. And many people who are struggling physically here on earth eagerly look forward to the day when they will forever shed this old and frail and tired body and exchange it for an eternal and glorified body. And some people wake up each morning and, and take pill after pill just to make themselves feel like they can properly function throughout the day. Many people feel like they're prisoners within their own bodies because their minds are still as sharp as they were when they were younger, but their bodies have slowed down and prevented them from doing the things their mind tells them that they still still feel like they should be able to do. Many of these people long for the day when they'll be rid of all the aches and pains that they're experiencing now, where they'll be able to run and jump and just walk normally again when they're in the glories of heaven. And believe me, every believer will enjoy all of those physical pleasures when we're in heaven. But the joy of heaven is not a glorified body. The joy of heaven is not a mansion. The joy of heaven is not even being reunited with loved ones that have gone on before us. Deep down, the, the true joy of heaven is the presence of God. As much as we can get tired of the issues of life, deep down what we long for the most is to be in the presence of our Lord and Savior. As sometimes we sing... When my life work has ended and I cross the swelling tide, when the bright and glorious morning I shall see, I shall know my Redeemer when I reach the other side 
and a smile will be the first to welcome me. I shall know him, I shall know him, and redeemed by his side I shall stand. I shall know him, I shall know him, by the prince of the nails in his hand. And the rest of that song goes on to describe the transition that believers experience from life here on earth to life in heaven. And after describing the many wonders that we're to behold as believers, we're left with these words. It says, but I long to meet my Savior first of all. Not I long to get the glorified body. I long to see the mansion. I long to see my loved ones. I long to see my Savior first of all. And that is true for any believer. Sure, there are things that we are just ready to be done with and rid of. But the true joy of heaven are not all the blessings and possessions and people. But as it says here in Psalm 1611, in thy presence is fullness of joy. No matter how you look at it, if you know Jesus as your Savior, it only gets better from here. Life may not be going great right now, but rest assured that the God who saved you is still holding you close to him. There may be all sorts of uncertainties regarding your future, but rest assured that God has promised a future in his presence where you shall one day see him as he is. And as it says here, and in his presence is fullness of joy. In the craziness of David's life, he found comfort, he found encouragement in what God had promised him. And these same words of Psalm 16 serve, should serve as the encouragement we need today with the various troubles that come in our lives. There are always going to be troubles that come up in life. Just remember to keep your eyes fixed on Christ. Remember who God is. Remind yourself of what God is doing. And rejoice in what God will do. Thou will show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. David was able to find comfort in all situations because as he focused on God, he was reminded that the best was yet to come. Would you bow with me in prayer tonight? Heavenly Father, thank you for the reminder that we have here in your word. Thank you, Lord, for the time that we spent here in the Psalms and, Lord, just looked at different instances in the life of David. Lord, and what these things mean to us. May we be encouraged. May we find, Lord, that you are just as much faithful, just as providing, just as protecting as you were for David. Lord, and I pray that we would run to you, remind ourselves of, of who you are, what you're doing, and Lord, what you've promised. And have the confidence that we need to go through life with our head held high, looking to you with our eyes fixed on serving you to the best of our ability. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.